If we haven't met before, my name is Ashley, and I'm the senior pastor here, and we're in a, the final installment of our Indominus series. Such a good series. This has been all about the power of God's grace, his unmerited favor, the righteousness that he gives us through Jesus simply because he loves us and his presence that sustains us in our lives. Grace isn't just something that we believe, it's something that we experience through God. Come on. And today we're going to close out this grace series by looking at the genealogy of Jesus. And some of you just were like, oh, I'm checking out. That sounds boring. And those of you who are like, oh my gosh, I love Ancestry.com and genealogies. You're like fastening your seatbelt, got your pen out ready to take notes. If you've read the Bible before, you probably skipped this part. It's okay to confess that in church. Probably like, let's get to all the good stuff and skip all the names. I don't blame you. It's kind of like reading a phone book. But Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And God could have given him any family tree, but I love the grace that he reveals to us in the genealogy that he chose for Jesus. Jesus could have been a part of any family, but we're going to look at his family. Matthew 1.1, it says, The family tree of Jesus Christ, David's son, Abraham's son. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and his brothers. Judah had Perez and Zerah. The mother was Tamar. Pause. So in this whole passage, we're going to see 42 generations, and they're usually represented by their husband's name. Just like I have my husband's last name, you know, and he's the head of our household. Just for brevity's sake, it lists all the men. But there are five times when God lists the women too. And I want to see, why did God include these women in his list? Because it's a particular set of ladies. So first we have Tamar. She's the mother of Perez and Zerah. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah and the mother of his kids. Wait, what? Yeah, she had kids with her father-in-law, okay? Ew. <laughs> but God included that in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, you just saw that. We read that. In parentheses, he's like, let's list all these husbands, and then Tamar. Her story is found in Genesis 38. She marries Judah's oldest son. That son dies. So according to Jewish tradition and law, she marries the next son. He dies. We get around to the third son, and Judah's like, something wrong with her. I don't want her to marry my third son. So he's like, just wait till he's a little older, and then I'll let you marry him. But Judah lied. He, he wasn't going to let her do that. So here's Tamar. It's a poor sweet girl. She did everything she was supposed to do. She's twice a widow. She's been in some of the best years of her life waiting for the third son to grow up, and she's got no means to support herself, and she's really at the mercy of her father-in-law. She didn't have the option of finding another man to marry. Uh, Judah got to decide who and when she got married. So she's faced with the prospect of no husband, no children, no way to support herself, and she dresses up like a prostitute. Probably not what you would have done, but this is what she did. You thought your problems were bad. So she covered her face. Judah went to the city at harvest time. He slept with her, thought she was just, you know, just a random prostitute. He gave her his signet, his cord, and his staff as payment. His signet ring that says, this is his stamp, his cord, 
and his staff. The only things that could represent him. Genesis 38, verse 24, it came to pass about three months after Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she's with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let's burn her. Judah, before you go judging Tamar, there is something that you should know. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. I love how discreet she is. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them, and he said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he did not sleep with her again. So Judah says, she was right to do what she did, because it was her only option. I took away all her other options. Now, if I were God, I would maybe leave this story out of the genealogy of Jesus. <laughs> but you know what God does? He's like, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. Judah, the guy who slept with a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law. That's messed up. But that's a picture of God's grace. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. No respecter of persons. Come on. God could have chosen any of Judah's 11 brothers to be one of Jesus' ancestors. There were some good options, like Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors. He had some great character. I mean, he was sold into slavery. His boss's wife tried to sleep with him, and he's like, no. He was a man of character. He ended up being second in command of Egypt, and God didn't choose him. He chose Judah. He chose to redeem the one that sinned. And because of God's grace, Judah became who he was created to be. Judah, in Genesis chapter 37, before the story of Tamar, he was the brother who said, let's sell our brother Joseph into slavery. Then Tamar happens. Then we get to Genesis 44. And after that whole humbling experience, Judah gets a second chance. And his youngest brother Benjamin's about to go into slavery. And Judah said, no take me instead. Judah didn't look for grace, but grace found him, and it changed him. Come on. God used his huge, embarrassing mistake of sleeping with his daughter-in-law to give him a place in the line of Jesus. And even though Tamar took matters into her own hands and she made a big mess of things too, God worked it out for her good. Let's see who's next in our genealogy. Matthew 1.3. Judah had Perez and Zerah. The mother was Tamar. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Aram. Aram had Aminadab. Aminadab had Nashon. Nashon had Salmon. Salmon had Boaz. His mother was Rahab. Pause. Second woman in the genealogy. Boaz's mom was Rahab. Who is Rahab? She was a prostitute like a, a real, actual prostitute. You know, Tomar, Tamar just pretended to be. No, 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 this was Rahab's job. There's a prostitute in Jesus' lineage? Whoa. How'd she end up in this long list of names? She believed God, and she received his grace. So the Israelites, they came to spy out Jericho, her hometown, and she hid them at great risk to herself. Look at it at Joshua 2.9. I know the Lord has given you this land 
And a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all of you who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed, because the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. That's what she believes. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I've shown kindness to you. Rahab had a past. She was part of an enemy kingdom. If anybody didn't deserve rescuing, didn't deserve to ask for such a thing, it was a prostitute in the enemy city they'd come to conquer. But that didn't stop her. That didn't stop her from believing God for her future, for believing that her family could be spared. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Come on. We've been talking about this whole series where we have a past, where we have labels, where we put limits on ourselves. God can change your future when you believe in him. Grace changes your future. You know, everybody knew that Rahab, she was a woman of the night. She probably never thought she'd get married because of her choices, you know. That was a dream she couldn't have. But then she marries Salmon, a captain's son, and she goes on to have a family of her own. God could have left Rahab out of the genealogy. She could have just mentioned Salmon, but he wasn't ashamed of it. We hide our background. We hide our past, but God wants to use it in our story. Come on. I love how in Catherine's story she said, I was curled up on a ball, on the couch in a ball with anxiety, but I believed in Jesus, and I went on that trip. I love that. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So Rahab, she goes on to be the mom of Boaz. And Boaz is the richest and most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem. Come on, that's exciting. Matthew 1, 5. Salmon had Boaz. His mother was Rahab. Boaz had Obed. Ruth was the mother. Boaz went on to marry Ruth, the third lady we're looking at today. So Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab actually was one. Oh no, what's next? What was Ruth? Ruth is the only woman in the Old Testament that the Bible calls virtuous. She had everything against her. She was a poor widow. She moved to Bethlehem, which was a foreign nation to her, with her widowed mother-in-law, without any of her family. And she believed in God. Ruth was a Moabite. And according to the law, the Moabites couldn't be part of the church. By law, she couldn't be a part of the lineage of Jesus. But by grace, she was. She was a widow like Tamar. She had no one to provide for her. She couldn't afford to buy grain, so she ended up going and gleaning behind the people who were picking the grain. She would pick up just the scraps that dropped. And she ended up in the field of Boaz. Out of all of the fields she could have chosen, she ended up in the field with someone who could redeem her family. She was at the lowest point in her life, but she was trusting God. And God's grace caused her to be in the right field at the right time. And Boaz was there. He saw her character. He saw her hard work. He gave her favor as she was picking up behind the reapers. And Boaz married her, and he redeemed her family. Come on. Matthew 1.5, Boaz had Obed. Ruth was the mother. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David, and David became king. You know David, David and Goliath. David had Solomon. Uriah's wife was the mother. Wait a second. David had Solomon with Uriah's wife, not David's wife, Uriah's wife. 
David actually murdered Uriah. This is his biggest mistake, his biggest weakness. And God uses it in Jesus' family tree. His power is made perfect in your weakness. If you look at all of David's wives, he had a lot of them, at least eight that were named. He had many kids. Um, Abigail would have been a good choice to be in Jesus' family line. Uh, the Bible says she was intelligent, she was beautiful, she was humble. But God chose Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the person that David had an affair with. And he chose her son Solomon to be in the family line. You see, no matter the depth of your sin, it doesn't forfeit God's promises over your life. Grace is greater. Come on. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Let's look at the rest of the genealogy. Matthew 1, 6. Solomon had Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoiakim and his brothers. Let's see who else. Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. I told you there's a lot of names. Abiah, Eliakim, some of them are hard to say, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eliud, Eleazar, Matan, Jacob, Joseph, Mary's husband, the Mary who gave birth to Jesus, the Jesus who was called Christ. Mary, the last woman in the genealogy. Mary who found favor with God. Mary who was a virgin. Mary who believed God. She was chosen to be Jesus' mother. She had all the genealogy, all the lineage because of her husband, Joseph. But the blood of Jesus came from his father, God. And the blood is what makes atonement for our sin. It's what makes atonement for our mistakes, the places where we fall short and miss the mark. So Jesus is fully God with the blood of God and fully man with all that big history we just talked about. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of every living thing is in the blood, and that's why the Lord has commanded all blood be poured out on the altar to take away people's sins. Blood, which is life, takes away sins. Jesus was born with the blood of God, and his blood at the cross took away our sins. So we're looking at this big genealogy, and it's like, what are you trying to get across to us, God? The thing is, God's not concerned about your circumstances or your background. He's not worried about your sins because Christ took care of it at the cross. And grace rewrites your future. Come on. When Judah encountered grace, it changed him. And he offered himself in the place of his brother as a slave. When Rahab encountered grace, she left prostitution behind. When Ruth encountered grace, she found a whole new family. When David encountered grace, he invited God into his biggest mistake. Grace is the God of the universe coming into your situation right where you're at. You don't have to clean yourself up. You're not too far gone. You're not your past. You're not your labels. You're not the limits that have been put on you. Grace takes care of those things. Come on. And gives you a new future. It changes you from the inside out. And here's the verse we've been looking at. You probably haven't memorized if you've been here all these weeks. Romans 5.20. Sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. 
When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. Yes, come on. Grace always wins, always dominates, and it's greater than anything else. Grace is not intimidated by your past. It's not intimidated by your family history. Grace has a future for you. So since grace always wins, the natural question is, why not keep on sinning? I mean, God used all those people. Why not keep giving God opportunities to show off his grace? That's what Paul says right after this verse, the very next chapter, Romans 6.1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We know our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So at the cross, Jesus was crucified and so was our sin nature. And when you believe in Jesus, you receive grace and you're no longer a slave to sin because you died to sin. And some of you need to hear that today. If you don't know that your old self was crucified with Christ, you're going to keep trying to fix your old self up. But it's dead. Don't be like a mortician putting makeup on a dead body. Your old nature is dead. You died to sin. All the places that you missed the mark, all the places you fell short and messed up, you're not a slave to it anymore because that old self died. You can still volunteer to sin. I mean, you can still choose to do things your own way. But why would you want to? Romans 6.22 says, Now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do, and you've discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension is death. Another verse says, and you feel shame. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our master. Come on. Jesus said, I have come so that they could have life an abundant life. You don't have to listen to sin anymore. You're dead to it and alive to Jesus. You can listen to God and experience a thriving life. So when your old habit comes knocking at your door, maybe you're tempted to click a link. Maybe you're tempted to text someone about how awful this person was to you. You don't have to. You don't have to go into your old patterns. You're free. You can remind yourself, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and believe in God's grace by faith. When you feel anxiety start to steal from you, you can remind yourself that his perfect love has cast out fear and it has no power over you. If you have a thought in your mind that's contrary to what God says, instead of being like, what is wrong with me? You can laugh it off. Just see it as a lie. Don't give it any attention and focus on who God says you are. Colossians 3.1 says, Since you have been raised with Christ, so you, he, you, your old self died at the cross, and your new self was raised with him when he rose from the dead. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Come on. You've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but he lives in you. He's been risen from the dead. His resurrection power lives in you, and you can set your mind on him. Set your mind on things of God. 
Set your mind on the truth that's far above maybe the circumstances that you see in front of you. It's like setting cruise control. You set it, and really, you forget it. Your speed follows. When you set your mind on Jesus, your life follows. Your actions follow. Your faith follows. Don't set your mind on your circumstances. There's times when maybe you think about like a work project or a problem, maybe a family issue, and you just can't come up with a solution. No matter how much time you invest in it, no matter how hard you work, and then you step away. And in your mind, you say to yourself, I've done what I can. I can't control everything, and I'm not going to let this steal from me. You keep putting your thoughts on Jesus. He holds every solution and remembering he cares about this problem even more than you do. When you fix your eyes on him, how many times have you walked away where you're like, the solution just comes to you. Set your minds on things above. Set your mind on your new life with Jesus because you're no longer a slave to sin. You're also no longer a slave to the law. Romans 7.1 says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. But now by dying to what, want, what wants bound us, we've been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. At the cross, you died to the law. That means you can stop striving. You can stop trying to earn your salvation. You can stop trying to prove yourself. And you can rest in what Jesus has already done. Come on. You can rest and let his spirit in you guide you. Under law, you're working for God, but under grace... God's power works for you. Under law, God says, you shall not do this. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not. But under grace, God says, I will do this for you. I have done this for you. I have fulfilled this for you. And you can rest in what he has done. The enemy wants you to think you need to still earn God's favor. But you die to the law and you have a new life. You're a new creation, the Bible says. The old has gone. The new has come. It doesn't say you're a fixed-up creation. You're brand new. You're united with Jesus. Come on. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus in you is the hope of glory. You're a son or a daughter. You're not a beggar asking to be set free from sin. You're a dearly loved child, and your father loves giving good gifts to his kids. Come on. You're not a sinner anymore. You are righteous. You can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Your every need has been supplied according to God's glorious riches in Jesus. He changes your want to from living for your desires to wanting to live for him. When you meet Jesus, he's your life and he lives in you. You can rest and simply let him live through you. He gives you authority over sin, over sickness, and the enemy. You're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to the law. You are free because of Jesus. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. Come on. So instead of being stressed about work and thinking I have to produce and getting frustrated, you can rest 
You can say, Jesus, I know you care about this. I trust you. You can make an internal shift to let Jesus handle it. You can still try your best, but you're trusting him for the outcome. There's such a difference in how you live your life. There's something about the law that's really captivating to us because we like control. We like producing. We like getting recognition. But God wants us to surrender that control to him. He wants us to rest in his grace. He wants us to stay in his grace. Galatians 5.4 says, If you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from God's grace. You've fallen away from grace. Have you heard that term before? Somebody fell from grace? Yeah. Maybe you hear it on the news, and people use it to say, Oh, they really messed up, made some bad choices, got into trouble. What a scandal. But falling from grace isn't choosing to sin. When people say that, they're using the Bible out of context. Falling from grace is putting yourself back under the law. It's choosing to relate to God out of your own efforts instead of what Jesus has done. Jesus already fulfilled the law perfectly. He already paid the price. He already set us free. Falling from grace means trying to do the right things to be righteous instead of believing in Jesus and letting God make you righteous. Galatians 5.1, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. You're free, but you can volunteer to go back to slavery to the law because you have free will. You can volunteer to go back into slavery to sin because you have free will. But that's not what you were created for. Choose to stay free. And how do we do that? We get to know who we really are in Jesus. Preach. I was thinking about this the other day. In 2017, my husband and I moved into our new house, and it came with a brand new microwave, and I opened up the microwave, and there was a metal shelf inside. And I was like, metal and microwaves do not mix. I mean, when I was like eight, I put a York peppermint patty in foil in the microwave, and that thing exploded. There was like flames. Yeah. I was like, oh, this shelf doesn't belong in here. This manufacturer is obviously crazy. So I took it out of the microwave and just put it in one of the cupboards. I was treating my new microwave like my old one. My old microwave, dead and gone. I think it's in the dump. New microwave, replaced it. New microwave, way better, and it can do all kinds of things the old one couldn't. But I kept treating it like the old one because I didn't know. I didn't know what my new one could do. And I was comfortable with the old one. I learned this week, by the way, that it's the thickness of the metal that determines if it's combustible. So, I mean, don't try this at home or anything. But apparently, that's why you can have a metal shelf in your microwave. I say all that to say our old nature is dead and gone. It, just like my microwave, we have a new nature. We're new creations. Come on. If we don't know we're new, if we don't know who we are because of Jesus, then we'll walk in those old tendencies, even though that old nature is completely dead and gone. What stayed the same at the cross? Our bodies are the same. They remember the things we've experienced. They're still subject to the effects of the fall. We still get wrinkles. We still get gray hair. One day they will pass away, and our minds are the same, our way of thinking, because it's up to us to renew our minds. We get to choose new thought patterns 
according to the truth of God's word by faith. And we talked a little bit about that last week. What you believe determines who you become. And what God says is truth, but we get to choose whether or not we believe it. Sometimes we don't believe it simply because we don't know it. Hosea 4.6 says, my people perish from a lack of knowledge. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know what he's done for you, you miss out. That's why it's so important to come to church. So, so important to get to know Jesus, to talk to him through prayer, to spend time with him. The more you get to know him, the more you know the freedom that you have in him. Sometimes we don't believe in that freedom because of our experiences. We conform to what we know, but transformation happens through Jesus. Romans 12:2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means don't be conformed to your experiences, your knowledge, your understanding, your best efforts. Instead, be transformed. Believe what God says about you and act according to those beliefs. Now, there's a couple kinds of beliefs. There's logical beliefs, choosing to believe with our mind. You can know the truth. But then there's experiential belief. This is like your emotional or physical memories. For example, if you trip and start to fall, logically, you'll be like, I need to put my hand out. I need to counterbalance. Maybe I need to catch myself. Don't want to fall on my face and break my nose. You know, you have lots of thoughts. But your experiential knowledge, that'll kick in way before your logic does. And your body will be like, oh, we're falling. Let's just, uh, you know, balance it out so we don't fall. As you choose to renew your mind, there are gonna be places where your experiential knowledge is catching up. So if someone hurt you, for example, you might feel trauma in your body when you start to form a new belief. That's okay, keep believing. What you're believing is right. What you're believing is the truth. What you're believing is what God says about you. You're waiting for your experience to catch up. If you've been in a car accident, maybe the next time that you hit a bump or something on the road can feel traumatic to you because your body's remembering that other experience. When the truth logically is, I know I'm not in a car accident again. Your experiential knowledge is catching up. Your logical knowledge is where you set your mind on what Jesus says. And for your experiential knowledge, ask God to heal those places. Don't let them hold you back because they feel very real and they were very true but you don't have to choose those coping mechanisms anymore. I love Catherine's story. It shows that you can choose a new path by faith. It's not always easy, but it's always worth it. And it happens step by step. Trusting God a little bit more here, taking a new step of faith there. God says, you're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to the law. At the cross, Jesus secured your freedom. He gives you grace you don't deserve and you didn't earn. And it's up to you to walk in that freedom by believing what God says about you. It's up to you to take hold of the life that Jesus has for you, to embrace your place in this big grace story. No matter your past, no matter your labels, no matter your experiences. Years ago, there was a missionary in Africa and he was on a horse riding to another village and about halfway there, he saw a really big poisonous snake in the road. And his horse starts flipping out, you know, like, let's go back. But the guy knew 
this is the only road to where he needed to go. And so he debated for a little bit, and after about five minutes, he got up the courage to pick up a rock. And he's like, if I miss, this snake is gonna be mad at me and this is gonna be bad. So he gets ready, he throws the rock, and the snake doesn't move. And he walks up to it a little closer, and he realized the snake was already dead. Somebody else passing that way before him had crushed the snake's head, and he just left it lying there in the path. See, the good news for us is that Jesus has already gone down our path, and he's cleared it of everything that could harm us. Come on. The Bible says he crushed the enemy's head. Don't let anything hold you back from what God has for you. Jesus already did the work. At the cross, he said, it's finished. He's cleared our path. And we simply choose to walk in it by faith, to trust him day by day, little by little, to embrace his grace, to receive his goodness, to get to know him.